Pure Kurosawa's movies make me know inside my heart that there's a possibility for filmic excellence. And if I were a ball player, I'd outplay you and dazzle her. I'd wear my socks up really high and dive like hundred pence. And if I had the chance to, I would laugh as I had plans to at your tirades and your failed attempts to masculate against. In this episode, we sit with Angel Colley from the Center for Sexual and Gender Diversity at Duke University to discuss how he navigated his transitioning experience in light of opposition and struggle. It's good to be with you, Angel, today. Thank you so much for agreeing to be a part of our Just Space podcast. The word identity often comes up in your work. Could you share with us what you think the word identity means? Yeah. I mean, when I think about identity, I think the it can be the parts of how someone shows up in the world, who they understand themselves to be. I think there's a constructed part of identity, some that... Um, you know, we may identify with those things or they may be things that have been assigned to us or that society has made meaning of and yet they impact our experiences and, um, and how we show up and how, um, what the expectations are for us in the world. Thank you, thank you. I, I think that I really think it's a salient point to think about uh, identity that one self-identifies as as opposed to one identity that one is assigned. Could you share more about uh, that difference of uh, identity that I live into because I self-identify with that identity versus an identity that I may just naturally be assigned um, by the outside world? Yeah, I mean, I, I'll, I think about that a lot in terms of the identities that I hold. Um, I think one of the salient, one of, one of my salient identities would be my identity as a trans person. And so I was assigned female at birth. Um, I was expected to um, conform to expectations associated with that sex assignment. Um, whether that was being, you know, forced to wear dresses or um, exp- and, and there was a whole line of expectations and restrictions and limitations that came along with that, down to the activities I wanted to engage in or what my family and my community wanted me to do. So, you know, this is kind of a, a, a general example, but, you know, growing up, I always wanted to play football. I wanted to be in Taekwondo and martial arts. My mom wanted me to, like, you know, let go uh go to dance school and wanted me to um she had always really wanted a girl so I think I got like a lot of that those hopes um and and yet that's not that never really fit for me there was always a, a a way in which I had this internal sense that I I was I was male I am male and um and so kind of I've had to come to um come come out as trans I've had to like align um my my gender expression and how I communicate my gender into the world um 
to reflect my gender identity because it it wasn't what what I was assigned, and so that's that's one example. Um, I certainly you know, and I also hold other identities that um, are that impact my experience and how I show up in the world and the access I have or the places where I don't necessarily have access. So I think about uh, my my racial identity. So as a white person, what does that mean and the, the privilege that that carries and the responsibility I have um, to be undoing that privilege? Uh, I think about my social economic status growing up in a working class family. I think about my faith as a, as a Christian in a society where Christianity has um, been the predominant religion for a long time and, and hasn't always uh, and has at times caused a lot of harm um, for for communities or been used to um, cause harm. I think about that in relationship to my queer and trans identity specifically. Um, and for me, my faith has is also the thing that gave me the strength to be who I am. And so having to reconcile um, the the church I grew up in and the and the type of Christianity that I grew up as a part of with the with who I, with who I knew myself to be and had um, a pretty difficult journey doing that when I when I came out um, I you know I was raised in a Southern Baptist church in rural North Carolina so I, you know I think that my grandfather was a deacon like I was in church every time the doors were open, right? Like Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. I'd be dragged along to women's auxiliary meetings where I learned a lot about other people in the church, but not necessarily a whole lot about the Bible. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, that's where the news was. <laughs> um, that was where the news was spread. But, uh, you know, so I think that having to reconcile all of those parts of my identity and, and make meaning of them has formed who I am now, has really informed the work I do, the work I hope to do. Um, I think it's always interesting that not navigating that um, and all, navigating those identities. Thank you for that, Angel. Ha- has there ever been points of conflict with others as you have negotiated your identity? I know you mentioned that there were challenging times as you uh, began to negotiate and navigate your identities. Yeah, I mean, I think that I, coming out in a small town in rural North Carolina was, was pretty difficult. Um, I got kicked out of my church. I was told that I was making a mockery of the church by praying on the altar with my piercings and homosexual colors. I was 14 at the time, um, and I really, I didn't have family support. Um, It took a long time. I I think when I first come out, my mom found out and, you know, said, you know, you're going to hell if you're gay. So it was a a pretty tough time in my life. Um, I had a youth minister whose wife really was kind of, the driving force behind the youth programming at the, at the church I was at. And she convinced my mom and the sheriff in the church to like put me in handcuffs and take me to a, a private Christian, like religiously affiliated, um, inpatient, um, clinic, like 
to be hospitalized and I would have been had I not and I, you know I was beginning to I don't I wouldn't say that I was necessarily suicidal but I began to like really like I, I think you know I my faith was such an important part of my 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 upbringing um, my family um, that it was really hard to be told that God hated me at 14 and not having the tools to to reconcile that or to like to 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 process that in emotionally healthy ways and so they would have hospitalized me had I not had I had insurance I did not have insurance at the time and so it, I, I often joke that like not having insurance saved my life in some ways because mm-hmm. I, I can't imagine what would have happened in that I think conversion therapy like very much had been in, indoctrinated with that kind of like ex-gay um mindset and and in the name of theology and in the name of 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 god that and and of jesus that i had also had a strong relationship with um when i didn't get in there they took me to like a to butner to a state psychiatric hospital and they laughed at my youth minister and congratulated my mom on having a normal teenager and i think that's when my mom began to wake up and see that maybe she was causing harm and maybe that there were other ideas aside from what the church was encouraging her to do. And so she began to like learn a little bit about PFLAG and, um, and begin to let me, uh, get involved with LGBT youth communities. There was one here in Durham that really, um, was transformative for me. It, It, they did a, they introduced me to MCC, which is a Christian church that um, was founded by and, and um, reaches out to the LGBTQ community. And I think I that was a time when I when I realized like I didn't have to give up one part of myself for another part of myself. Because you know how do I how how I don't I couldn't choose between who God made me to be and like the God that had always been a part of my life. I, I kind of I have a tattoo now that it's like a God shaped hole in my heart and that's what it felt like until I was able to so to to find an affirming faith community that offered different ways to and interpretations to look at at scripture and theology and I wasn't out as trans yet um I I don't think I had the tools or information to even know what trans meant or that that was even a possibility for me um, and being involved with the queer youth organization, I remember when we did a workshop on like a trans one one and it blew my mind because there was a, there was a stranger up there talking about his story, and it's like he was verbalizing some of the and putting names and words and terms to some of the like deepest feelings that I don't hadn't had not even really been able to articulate for myself. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting when I was in middle school, I went out for the football team. And I tried out for the football team, and everyone else around me made a big deal about it. And a part of me didn't understand why. And looking back with the tools I have now, I think what I came to understand was that I always had understood myself to be a boy, and to be my gender internally had always been had always been male. And so, when you're young and you're a tomboy, it's cute, and there's not the consequences. And then at some point you're not so young anymore and the interrogating begins don't you want to look good for the guys to don't you want to get 
a date to the middle school dance. Don't you want, you know, and or you really should do this. I think the one of those pivotal moments for me came when I was on the football team and they started making me ride with the cheerleaders. I think it, and the, so I didn't get to ride with the team. Wow. Yeah, and like the te- that was kind of a huge part of being on the team, like going to the game, um, strategizing about the game, uh, after the game, like celebrating and just kind of being and 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 th- yeah, and, and so I think what that was about was that they really were trying hard to begin to force me to um, to identify with the sex I've been assigned at birth and I and I just never did so so I think for me I think it's been negotiating like how to reconcile my faith which has always been so important to me with my gender identity with with my queerness and I think that they come in stages they're fluid um in that I came out as a lesbian and then just realized like it was never about my sexuality as much as it was about my gender identity and I would say even even now, as I've, in the last few years, when I've been passing as the, as um, male, and in most spaces I'm in, most of the time, people use the correct pronouns for me. Um, my sexuality has even been, like, I've, has been, I've been kind of reconceptualizing what that means to me, because that really shifted for me. Um as I was able to be more comfortable and grounded in my in my gender identity, I I, I kind of in terms of talking about how that shows up in relationship to privilege, I I also understand that having access to the resources I needed to be able to transition was a privilege and is a privilege. Um, the fact that I I've I've been able to understand how people treat me differently based on how I'm showing up. So how. I was treated when I was perceived to be female is very different from how I'm treated now that I'm perceived to be male. So oh, very interesting. And yeah, and so it, and it, it I call it a kind of conditional privilege, um, in that the moment I'm not passing, I may no longer be safe, depending on the context that I'm in. Um, and yet, like I have as a trans man, I have. A lot, I, I, I now have, I walk through the world and carrying a lot of privilege. I have my white privilege, my educational access and privilege, um, my, male, my male privilege. And so thinking about the responsibility I have, um, it's been interesting because I think that I have had access to conversations I may have never had access to before. And I have to make a decision in those moments about how I'm going to respond. And often things going through my head are, like, how am I showing up? Like, how am I being treated differently based on these identities that I hold? Is it safe, right? Like, if I overhear, you know, I think if, I, if I'm in a space where I travel a lot, so I've been in situations where I'm, like, in a hostel or in, like, a, a, a bathroom where I, I overhear kind of sexist remarks, um, and I have to decide, like, am I safe? Because when, when I call it, like, how do I call this out in a way that's not going to put me in an unsafe situation and also like I have a responsibility to because I I have access to this conversation that other folks might not um so that's something I spend a lot of time thinking about and trying to do better um I think I take that seriously um I think I also um so I think it's yeah it's been interesting to kind of navigate 
those identities and like that relationship with privilege um, and oppression, uh, not being cis is, is a place that I don't hold privilege and yet because of how I'm often perceived, I also know that I do carry a fair amount of privilege and how that people respond to me differently now. So it's, it's interesting to figure out how to try to like navigate that. Um, in relationship as to my whiteness as well and like thinking about what it means for me showing up as a white person and like needing to um, be doing and committed to racial justice work and knowing that I'm going to I'm going to mess up and I'm continuing to learn and be a part of those conversations of undoing um, white supremacy when it when it's showing up in essence I think you're naming intersectionality how there are some identities for which we can hold that have lots of privilege, while there's other identities that we can hold that can be very much so oppressed. And how, in my perspective, each identity is sort of on a continuum of freedom. And our goal is, if you're more free in your identities in a certain context, and you see that someone else who shares the opposite identity or another identity that's not as free, then I think a shared goal of liberation and freedom is to work to get those other identities that you may not hold free in that other person's life. And it makes me think of Angela Davis's quote, freedom is a constant struggle. How, how does that quote resonate with you and resonate with your life and your life story and your work in social justice? Um, freedom is a constant struggle yeah I think that I when I think about that I, I agree with you I think I hold a variety of identities some that are marginalized and many that are privileged and I think that it means I have a responsibility in the places that I hold privilege because I, real, I have to realize that um, even when I'm encountering um, cissexism or heterosexism, I'm encountering those things with, with my white, like as a white person. I'm encountering those things as a person who has an, um, a, a good job, as a person who has not an abundance, but the resources I need. And... Um, it's not, and I think when I, it, I think it's a constant, it's a constant journey in myself to, to be mindful. I think that there's a tendency sometimes to center the places where we might hold marginalized identities. I think in terms of, especially I think doing this work, um, working in a cultural and identity center that is centered on um, supporting, providing resources, advocating with folks who hold marginalized sojis. And yet I know I have, and yet my, for me, I know that I always have to resist that. Um, I guess the, it's, it's easy for me to focus on the place where I hold marginalized identities. Yet my, my, my work, my real individual, like personal work is that I must be centering the places where I hold privilege to undo that. Um, and I think that's going to be a constant 
I think that's going to be a lifetime journey um, of understanding how I show up in relationship to others. How am I a part of reinforcing um, sexism based on when I'm in a situation where I'm being afforded privilege on the base of um, my maleness or where am I um, facing privilege um, on the basis of my whiteness so that I have a responsibility to undo that. And so that to me is, is going to be something I have to always be doing doing and learning and growing and being a little bit better um, in. So, um, and I know that I also am going to mess up and that I am going to make mistakes. And I also know that I have to be, I, my work is to be mindful of how I'm responding when I'm messing up. And my, when people are telling me how they're experiencing me or when people are telling me how they're experiencing our trainings or when people are um, telling me how they've encountered racism or sexism um, within the places that I operate. Am I listening to people? Am I believing people when they tell me? Um, and, and am I doing my part to think about the policies or what we're focusing on or the conversations that we're having? I, I take my responsibility and work with students very seriously in that as someone who is as someone who has the privilege of access and to working and developing students like I have an even greater responsibility to model um, to model what it looks like to and how to show up in ways that are mindful and that doesn't center the identities that I hold that are marginalized but also is doing that work of um, the places where I hold privilege I think that means that shows up in a lot of ways um, when we're working with student staff and when we're either in one-on-one -on -one conversations or in our group conversations, are we talking, are we modeling what it means to have conversations about how racism is showing up in our office? Are we having conversations about how sexism is showing up? Are we thinking about, are we, are we holding that in conversations when our students are planning programs? Are we asking when they're putting a panel together, are we, are we encouraging them to think about intersectionality and whose voices are being lifted up and who's being asked to do emotional labor and what kind of work are you doing to educate yourself on places where you hold privilege? I take those things very seriously. I think all of your words today, Angel, have been very insightful and I, I have a final question, and before I get to that final question, I think what's on my mind is expectations and boxes. There's this fixation in many contexts of the man who gets married to the woman and has the children, and the woman who uh, gets married to the man and has the bridesmaids and the, the fairy tales, those, those themes and those tropes that we've all heard of, that we've all known. And this great tension when we don't fall within those scripts, within those narratives, and how it's pretty brave to push back against those narratives. And it's pretty brave to push back against those scripts. And it makes me think of, once again, the word struggle. 
And so my, my final question, and I'd love to get your reflections on, is what does struggling have to do with creating just space? Um, yeah, I think I resonate with um, what's on your mind in terms of the boxes, the expectations, the roles and restrictions that are placed on all of us based on the identities that we hold. Um, I think the bane of my existence right now is gender reveal parties and this trend of gender reveal parties. Interesting. Um, and how we all, like before a baby is even born, we've, we have this tendency to write this whole script, of, this whole script about their lives and how they're going to show up without even getting to know who they are um, and how they might identify in relationship to gender and how, how hard that is to rewrite um, rewrite those expectations society and people have for you. Um, and there are real consequences. I think one of the one of the one of the reasons that this work is so meaningful to me is because when I when I think about my own when I think about my own story and growing up and how hard it was to not see people around me who who held the identities that I hold or who provided um, a possibility there um, or who could be there to help me make sense of um, pushing back against all of the expectations that were placed on me or to help to be there for me when I encountered the consequences of um, of, of failing to conform to those expectations. And so I, I think I, I want to I want to be that for um, for our students, I want to be that for um, folks who are are figuring out their identities, who um, who've known their identities all along, and now have to figure out what it means to to tell to come out and what that means to them, and if that is something that's important to them. I, you know, I think you know coming out is um, not something that happens just one time. It it happens many many times, um, and and often. Um, sometimes on a daily basis, right? Like kind of navigating how and when and what spaces are are safe. Or I think that those that's negotiated every day, all the time for folks who hold marginalized sojis. Um, and and yet, I'm at a place in my life where I can look at the things that were hard about for me coming out and the things that were were painful and um, and know that they have they have shaped who I am they have um, given me tools and resources and resilience to um, to do this work and so yeah um, um, That is very exciting. Yeah, I don't know. So, 
I think that I envision a, a world in which people don't have to struggle to be to show up authentically um, and with all of um, with where we, we all can show up authentically and show up with all of ourselves and be celebrated and to have access to um, to safety and security and to freedom to um, to do the to, to, to do the things that we feel called to do to show up in the world in ways we feel called to show up in the world um, and while that it, and 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 also seeing that how in how far from it we are um, that that oppression shows up in the ways that it shows up in in the institutions and in, interpersonally in the biases biases that um, that that we all that we hold that I hold um, and yet. I think there's something about struggling with with that that ultimately, um, for me, I can I can only speak for myself, allows me to get a little bit closer to to to, to my humanity, um, and to 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 realizing that in the world. Um, well, thank you, Angel. Thank you for your time. Thank you for sharing your story. We've certainly learned a lot, and we appreciate you uh, being part of our podcast. Thank you much. Thank you. Angel's interviewed by Shelvis Pons. Our editing for this episode has been done by Kyle Kubosik. And the outreach coordinator for this episode is Ezra Uzu Mason. Today's intro and outro song is called Sayonara by the artist Adam Henry Garcia. In addition, this production is made possible by the Division of Student Affairs at Duke University.